Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. With St. Paul this morning, I find myself contemplating foundations. Surprisingly, though, I am being more of a literalist than Paul. Don't worry, it'll probably only happen this one time. Deep underneath Christianity's holiest site, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you can see archaeological digs around a 1,600-year-old wall. The church marks the place where Jesus was crucified and includes a chapel over what is said to be Jesus' tomb, where he was buried and rose from the dead. The present building was constructed in about the 11th century, but the foundations are older. Deep beneath the church, behind the Armenian chapel, you can see that 3rd century wall from the original building serving as the foundation of the present church. The old wall consists of these massive stones, and many of the blocks were already sanctified. Much of Jesus' church is recycled material, reused building blocks from the destroyed Jewish temple. These stones hold weight, physically and metaphorically. What the first Christians called the way, the way of love, the way of justice, what our presiding bishop today calls the Jesus movement. Our faith is built on Jewish foundations. We share stories. We share ancestors. We count ourselves among the stars Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar saw when God said, look at the night sky. Your offspring will be as numerous. Our faith is built on Joseph's technicolor dreams. We are liberated with Moses from Pharaoh's bitter yoke. We stand with Ruth who tells Naomi, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. We look to David and Nathan as our ancestors in the faith. Likewise, in the sixth century, when the prophet Muhammad taught Islam the way of peace, the way of submission, he built upon Semitic tradition. The Quran references Hagar and Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. The Islamic holy texts make room for Jesus and for Mother Mary. When the call to prayer echoes across the Muslim world six times a day, it is said that followers of Islam prostrate themselves using a set of movements very similar to how early Christian monks and nuns bowed and stood as they said the Lord's Prayer. The mosque and the shrine which currently stand on the site of Solomon's temple, that temple David wanted to build, on top of Mount Moriah, those Islamic holy sites mark the night journey supposedly made by Muhammad to the heavens. From the temple mount, the prophet ascended and then descended with orders from God how Muslims were to pray. The gleaming gold dome of the rock and the Al-Aqsa mosque They were constructed as well, at least partly, with stones from the destroyed temple. I'm going to leave aside the archaeology for a while, I promise, lest this sermon devolve into a slideshow with me pointing at vacation photos with a laser pointer. (laughs) I'm going to take a pause. But no, the holy sites in Jerusalem for Christianity and Islam, they're built with stone already sanctified 
already made holy by centuries of Jewish prayer. No other city on earth carries such weight for so many faiths. No other city on earth has such complex questions bringing together laws of religion and real estate. Every holy site has layers upon layers of contested claims. Regular fights, real physical fights, break out in the holy places. Sometimes Jews fight Muslims. Often Jews fight other Jews. Sometimes Christians fight with Muslims. More often, Christians fight among themselves. You get the picture. The stress level in Jerusalem is high. Yossi Klein Halevi is an American-born Israeli journalist. Back in 1999, he set out on a strange journey. Halevi is an Orthodox Jew who saw his move to Israel as a spiritual journey. In his book, At the Entrance of the Garden of Eden, Halevi goes to pray with native Palestinian Muslims and Christians, fellow dwellers in the Holy Land. He also spends time with others who, like him, have immigrated back to the storied land of Israel-Palestine, like himself, drawn to the holy places, but for them, they were Muslim and Christian places. Halevi goes to dialogue with folks, but also to eat, to dance, and to pray with his neighbors. His desire to break bread, to share life, to share prayer, it makes his journey strange. Yossi is rebuked by his fellow Jews and by Christians and Muslims who think that his project is folly. Israel-Palestine is a place where the religious think of holier than thou, not as an insult, but a mission statement. Staying away from those who believe differently, who eat differently, pray differently, worship differently, staying pure and orthodox remains a central anxiety for many believers across the faiths of the Holy Land. The contests for dominance seem to intensify the fear and the avoidance of the other. Yossi Klein Halevi, the journalist, asks, if peace comes to the Holy Land, to Zion, won't it be a religious peace? Shouldn't we start with faith, with prayer? And the journalist and spiritual seeker did find a few willing companions in his journey. He has some wonderful misadventures with Sufi sheikhs, whirling with dervishes and chanting, there is only God. And partway through the journey, he meets a Melkite monk, a priest of an ancient order whose roots in Christianity stretch all the way back to the first church in Jerusalem. Like Halevi, Father Yaakov had decided that Christians, Jews, and Muslims needed to find ways to pray together, since they share the same God. Father Yaakov built a tiny monastery guesthouse in northern Israel but he did not put crosses up on the walls. And he stocked the bookshelves with Jewish, Muslim, and even Buddhist texts. Father Yaakov wanted to create a literal space, humble as it might be, for folks to come together. The journalist, at one point in the book, asks the old monk, in the midst of all of the pain in Israel and Palestine, how do you keep your heart open? How do you keep your heart open in the midst of the fought over land, in the midst of the conflict, when politicians and everyday people treat one another in such awful ways? How do you keep your heart open? 
that question, that singular question might be the whole struggle of faith. How do you keep your heart open? In today's gospel, Jesus tries to invite his followers away. Take some time for yourselves. Get away to a deserted place. The life of faith requires some solitude, some space for reflection and contemplation, for quiet. Jesus says, come away. If you can't find regular space for that quiet, for prayer, for silence, it's hard to hold your heart open. Opening your heart takes practice. But the gospel does not leave Jesus and the disciples alone for very long, does it? Indeed, they don't get the retreat they're planning at all. The crowd has gone on ahead of them. They meet Jesus and his followers on the other lake shore. And Jesus has compassion for those sheep without a shepherd. The story begs some balance in faith. Holding your heart open requires silence, time apart, time for reflection. An active life of prayer necessitates regular intentional quiet time, time away. But for followers of Jesus, compassion always wins. We have to return to the world and its needs. Even when people treat one another awfully, even when they lie and yell and make all sorts of dumb decisions, even when the news is frightening and rockets fly and bombs drop and we wonder how on earth our politics and our contests have descended to such a level, compassion wins. Jesus brings his open heart into that busy, frantic, hungry, and hurting crowd. Jesus marches the disciples into the divided politics of Jerusalem. Jesus again and again decides to engage, even when he would most like to retreat. Father Yakov told the journalist Yossi Klein-Halevi how he keeps his heart open, even in the midst of pain and anger and division. See, Father Yaakov was drawn to the Holy Land, immigrated there because of those ancient stones. He was drawn to participate, to pray in the places where Abraham and Sarah, Jesus and Mary, Hagar, and even Muhammad had all prayed. The ancient stones mattered, but they were not enough on their own. Shared foundations are not enough. Keeping your heart open requires looking to the future. I may disagree with my Jewish, Muslim, or Christian neighbor today, but I trust that God will do more with and for them than I can ask or imagine. All souls will be redeemed in the end. When you find yourself tired and frustrated and angry at the current state of affairs, whether those affairs are local to your family or involve global politics, when you find yourself exhausted Find some silence. Ask God for an open heart. We may never reconcile the past. We will never dig up the ancient stones to rebuild the temple. To do so would be to deconstruct too much sacred history. We cannot undo the past, but we can learn to live gently in response to what has been. And we can learn to look together, forward with hope. We can practice opening our hearts. You and I will probably never live to see a permanent peace in the land of the Holy One between Muslim, Jew, and Christian. We might not live to see peace among our own siblings, 
but we can catch glimpses of the world as it could be. I've stood together with Muslims and Jews as we've prayed for peace in the streets of Ferguson. We've stood with Buddhists and Hindus as we ask for an end to gun violence. We've stood together with sisters and brothers, siblings of many faiths and none, as we've asked for more humane enforcement of our borders and for the reunification of immigrant families. Just last month, we stood with interfaith leaders to celebrate LGBTQ plus pride. At times, we have prayed with our lips, and at times, we have prayed with our feet. Working together for a common future, I have glimpsed what I believe to be God's dream for our world, united in justice and love. When faced with all the need and frustration and anger in our world, it is tempting to run. It is tempting to hide. It is tempting to shut down and permanently unplug. Jesus didn't. Jesus led with compassion and taught his followers to open their hearts again and again and again. Sometimes that means finding some time apart and finding some silence. Often it means carrying that practice into life's stressful and fractious moments. Practice opening your heart again and again. Someday we will all learn to keep our hearts open, even in the most difficult circumstances. We will learn to build upon our common foundations, a new city, God's city, of compassion, of justice, and love. Amen. Amen.